We can turn to Luke 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab that pew Bible there in front of you. I think you'll find it helpful to follow along as we walk through this text together. C.S. Lewis said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that is humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two errors in which we might fall when it comes to this idea of wicked angels, demons. One is to have an obsessive and an unhealthy interest in them. Since the release of the Exorcist movie in the early 70s and the iconic images that may even come to mind, there's been dozens and dozens of movies about exorcism, about demonic possession. Another way we might be unhealthily obsessed is to sort of view Satan and Jesus or Satan as God as kind of two equal opposing forces sort of battling it out and we get to watch who's going to win this fight, who's going to win this battle. I think another way that, that sort of we can be unhealthy and out of balance, and you hear this sometimes, especially in the counseling world, some people talk about, demons of particular sins. So you, somebody might talk about a demon of depression or a demon of anger or a demon of alcohol. So what's the answer then? It's not repentance and faith. It's to be rid of this demon of alcohol. You need somebody to come alongside and, and do that for you. There's entire so-called deliverance ministries that are dedicated to this sort of um, for a small fee, they can cure you of your drunkenness. Some react to the other side. Some might disbelieve. They scoff at the supernatural. They use demon not to refer to a wicked angel, but sort of something that haunts you from your past, maybe a decision. She's still wrestling with her demons, they might say. Well, they're talking about sin that just afflicts you. I think there's even sort of a, a Christian, even a Reformed-ish way to, to not disbelieve in, in wicked angels, but to uh, downplay their reality and their existence, a dismissal of the presence and power of wicked angels. It's tempting when people obsess to overreact and then to downplay and to be lulled to sleep a little bit. The danger of, of either of these errors, of course, is that it minimizes Christ. It minimizes Christ by either focusing too much on demons and the supernatural and sport, spiritual warfare, or it minimizes Christ in the sense that these, these demons that Jesus is about to command with the power and the authority of his voice, these demons in which Jesus triumphs over in the cross, if they're nothing, then the work of Jesus is, is limited as well. It's really of no significance. If they are equal with Christ in some sense, then creation falls on a level playing field with Christ, and we don't want to... We don't want to fall into either error, either giving them too much credit or too little um, existence or power. So our text this morning 
helps us and that we see the reality of wicked angels under the dominion of Satan. We see the powerful influence that they can have in the life of people and even, we'll see, in other parts of creation. But most importantly, we see that Christ has come to destroy the work of the devil. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. He demonstrates his authority, again, with the power of his voice and his ability to deliver people from their influence and control. So that's our first point this morning. We're taking two paragraphs because it's the same narrative. That first paragraph, verses 26 through 33, Jesus has overcome or has come to overthrow the works of the devil. Let's read uh, again. I know Gary just read it, but it'll be helpful for us to read that first paragraph there, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So Jesus has just stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He told the waves to stop, and they stopped. He told the winds to cease, and they ceased. He set out to go to the other side, and he makes it to the other side. And with the authority with which he speaks, he controls even creation. We said last week that, that there are sort of these four miracles that Jesus does in a row and they're all pointing to the authority of Christ and they're pointing to the fact that anything in the way of Christ or in the way of him fulfilling his will and his mission loses. So last week it was creation that bowed down before his authority. This week it's a, another aspect of creation, wicked angels. So they arrive on the shore there in verse 26 in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, as far as we can tell, that's Gentile territory on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew, it tells us Jesus had gotten in the boat to, get, to sort of get some rest away from the crowds. But as soon as he steps on land, there's more work to be done. And so a man approaches him. The text says, with demons. Now, sort of as an aside... Matthew records that there's two men present here, two demon-possessed men, and some have tried to pit Luke and Matthew against each other and say, oh, look, see here, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. This is some sort of a contradiction. Well, of course, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. Luke can focus on one man 
without including the other man, and tell the story truthfully. It would be like me saying, you know, Wayne was in church this morning, and you say, Anne was too, you liar. Well, <laughs> that's ridiculous. So Luke hones in on this one man, and this man is described as one with many demons. And we learn then some of, some of the nature of the way the demons have afflicted or controlled this man. He is possessed, it says, by multiple demons. In the Gospels and Acts, there's various descriptions of ways that demons might afflict or possess or control or influence people. Sometimes there are these physical manifestations like the man in Matthew 12 who was mute and blind as the result to, of demonic activity. Now that doesn't mean we don't draw one-to-one -one and say, if, therefore, if somebody's mute or blind, they're, they're demon-possessed. That's not the point. The point is sometimes it manifests itself this way. So sometimes it'll say he has demons, sometimes it'll say he's possessed by demons, sometimes it'll say he was afflicted by demons. And what this means is literal, wicked angels exerting a tremendous evil influence, even in this case, control over a person. In this case, they use him as a pawn in their interaction with Jesus. It's important to this story then, that there are many demons who afflict this man. When Jesus asked the, the, the man, what is your name? The, the demons reply, legion. That's their way of saying, we are many. A legion in a Roman army would have been about 6,000 soldiers. So it's not, uh, it's, the point isn't there's, exactly 6,000 demons afflicting this man. It's, it's to get a sense of, of the largeness of the amount of demons who are possessing this man. And it also sets up this battle imagery that these demons align themselves as, almost as if a Roman army against Jesus. And this is an escalation. We've seen in Luke already that Jesus casts out demons. Some demons have fled even at his presence. But this is an escalation. This is the first time it's been one against thousands. And if you're reading this gospel for the first time, you might be thinking, okay, well, he cast out one at a time. What will he do against a legion of angels? How will his power hold up when confronted with thousands of angels? He has many demons, the text says. He's also, he also has no clothes. I know a man who preached this text and titled his sermon, A Nude Dude in a Rude Mood. <laughs> and he is. He's without clothing. He lives among the tombs, the text says. He lives among the dead. He has superhuman strength in verse 29. Society attempted as best they could to sort of step in and contain the situation and they set guards over him and they, they would put ropes around his arms and, and hands and they would shackle his feet and he would break through those 
and be carried away, be driven, the text says, out into the desert. So he's nude, he's living among the tombs, he's expressing at times superhuman strength, and he's driven to isolation as he's driven out into the desert. We see then this powerful control that's exerted over this man. His mind, his will, his body are at the behest of evil. And what's the result? The result is a sad and pathetic state for this man. It's a, it's a scary thing to be under the control of, of evil. It reminds me of that line in O Brother, Where Art Thou? where Tommy Johnson sells his soul to the devil in order to play the guitar better. And Delmar says, Oh, son, for that you sold your everlasting soul? Now, I'm not suggesting this, this guy made a deal with the devil. I'm pointing out the sad and pathetic state of anyone who practices evil and follows the path of darkness. He is completely and utterly dehumanized. He is more animal-like than man-like at this point. And it seems that in these, this demonic hatred of God, one of their goals is to destroy those who bear His image and to dehumanize those who are made in the image of God. They so rage against God that they rage against those who are made in His image and seek to mar and destroy that image. So whether it's the indignity of nakedness, the despair of self-harm, the obsession with death, that which mars the image of God in man is demonic. That which the world cheers on today and that our flesh sometimes desires is the shaping and forming of Satan at work in this world as the New Testament is not afraid to call Satan, in, at least in one sense, the God of this world. So though then we might say this is an extraordinary case that's going to demonstrate the extraordinary power and authority of Jesus and his ability to deliver this man. We, we can zoom out a little bit and we can see that this is not the only way that Satan and wicked angels exert an influence on this world and therefore on us. In describing all of those who are outside of Christ, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Of course, he goes on to talk about indulging in the lusts of the flesh. So even though we, we look at an extreme example here, we might not have had the experience of the demoniac here. We all do know this powerful pull of this world's system that's set up by Satan. We know what it is to live in a world that is anti-God. Particularly, some of you who came to Christ later in life may see this more accurately, how you were blind for a long time from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. Your mind was blinded. You may be able to recall more accurately maybe than a kid who's grown up in the church and been saved at a young age. 
you may see more accurately that your will was aligned against God and against His good pleasure as you indulge in the lusts of the flesh. And you may recall specific ways in which you presented your body not as an instrument of righteousness, but as an instrument of unrighteousness and not as a sacrifice to Christ, but as in service to self. Others of us this morning may need to be reminded that sometimes the influence of, of Satan and this world's system and his wicked angels does not always look like egregious sin and debauchery and all the sins that we would list up here is really, really bad. If you remember, Jesus confronts the Pharisees saying, you are of your father, the devil. And they were morally upright people. So Satan and his team of deceivers seek to undermine Christ at every turn, and they are perfectly content to use self-righteousness or sex and drugs and violence. As long as we are blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ by the enlivening work of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about this influence then, we might ask, then who is this text good news for? Is it only good news for people like this man in this text who have been so ravaged? No, it's good news for all of us. It's good news for you this morning because it's in the terror of the demons that we might find great comfort in Christ. We see it there in verse 28. Listen their response. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. We see then the, the power and the authority of Christ. You know, again, we said if you were reading this gospel for the first time, you might wonder how will Jesus stand up against thousands of, of angels? There may have been some question in the mind of the reader when, when the disciples saw Jesus still the, uh, still the storm earlier. They said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. The disciples are wondering who Jesus is. But there's someone who isn't wondering who Jesus is. It's these demons. It's these wicked angels. They know exactly who He is. It's Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. They recognize Him, yet they hate Him. They know Jesus, yet they shudder before Him. The man fell before Christ upon seeing Him, as if to recognize the authority of Jesus. The demons, again, in recognition of Jesus' authority, beg of Jesus three things. First, that he would not torment them. So they, they cry out to Jesus, do not torment me. Not only do they recognize the authority of Jesus, they also know that, that the Son is the executor of judgment. They know that he will take up his rightful place as judge over all creation, and it includes them. 
They know that they will one day be judged for their wickedness, that they will be cast into the eternal fire of hell and be tormented night and day for all eternity. They know they will stand before Christ and be judged, and so they beg Him, do not torment me today. They beg for another day. Second, they ask that they may not be sent to the abyss there in verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now this is um, something we could spend a lot of time on. We don't have time to really camp out here. But it seems that there's a segment of rebellious angels who God has already imprisoned, no longer to roam the earth, who are simply awaiting the day of judgment, the day of torment. The abyss, then, is, is this holding place for a segment of the wicked angels. Jude, verse 6, says this, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So they judge, do not torment me, or they beg, do not torment me. They beg, do not send us to the abyss. And then they beg third, instead of the abyss, there's some pigs over here. Why don't you send us over to these pigs there in verse 32? The final day, the day that Jude spoke about in verse 6, has not come yet for these angels. But there's no question that Jesus will deliver this man. They cannot stay. And therefore, the demons will flee at the utterance of his voice. And so they're begging, don't send us to the abyss. Send us, send us over here into this herd of pigs. And the end of verse 32 says, so he gave them permission. Now that's an authoritative statement. He gave them permission. You don't, you don't ask permission for somebody that's below you. My children don't grant me permission to parent them. So when he grants them permission, he's demonstrating his absolute authority over them. In fact, in Matthew, it's one word, go. And they go. Immediately, they flee. And they obey the voice of Christ. And they enter this herd of pigs, and, and the pigs immediately rush down into the ocean, and they drown. And this is, this is a massive herd. There's thousands of demons. There's thousands of pigs here. This is a huge herd. This is so much bacon lost. But Luther wrote, listen, this, Jesus commands these, these angels with the authority and the power of his voice. And Luther wrote about then the courage that we can take because we serve the authoritative Jesus. And you'll recognize these words. We sing them. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fill him. So we can avoid these two errors then as we, we see the authority of Christ. 
We can avoid becoming obsessed and fearful and scared and, and, and so consumed by the powers of darkness that, that are, exercise authority in this world and hate God and His people. We can avoid obsession with that and we can avoid uh, pretending like they don't exist or pretending like they're no big deal. Instead, our attention is drawn to Christ as we consider with the word of His voice, He compels them. We remember in Job that Satan stood before God and needed God's permission to even act. So as we think about this herd of pigs drowning, mass swine suicide, there's all these questions that, that well up, at least in my mind, I'm sure some questions that well up in your mind. How can animals be possessed? Well, if you have cats, you know. I'm kidding, i got to quit picking on cats. But with all these questions, what happens to demons after the pigs die? Is that their judgment? The, the ocean sometimes is an abyss. Were they sent to the abyss? Why do they ask to be sent into the pigs instead of just expelled from the man and they can sort of roam the earth? You know, we aren't given specific answers to these questions. We can guess, we can speculate on these things, but the truth is we don't. No, what, what, what is true is this chaotic scene of this man who was out of his mind, he was obsessed with death, he was naked. At the moment Jesus said, go, all of these pigs rushed down in the water and now the man has changed. We do know that this is the visible representation that this man has been delivered by Jesus. It's the visible picture that this man has been delivered. And so we get to see that without guessing at all the other reasons why this happened. And we see then that it's nothing. It's nothing for the Son of the Most High to just utter with His voice. He compels the demons. With His presence, they fell before Him. With His voice, they fled from Him. His very presence compelled them to fall, and His voice compels them to flee. And so as we've seen in the book of Luke, as Jesus is incarnated and he's healing and he's delivering, that his very presence signifies the beginning of the end of the rule of Satan and his wicked angels. In his incarnation, we see that Jesus has come to overthrow them and to deliver people from their grasp. At the end of chapter Nine, Jesus will set his face toward Jerusalem. He will begin his march toward Jerusalem where we know he will suffer there on a cross. And on that day when perhaps Satan thinks he has won a great victory, it's through that cross and the resurrection of Jesus that these very angels are put to absolute shame. Because the cross becomes the means of salvation for people, for God's people. It is the means by which people will be um, delivered from the state of spiritual death. They will be brought to life. It is the means by which we are freed from the dominating power of sin. And ultimately, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, from the controlling power of the prince of the power of the air. The, the cross becomes the ultimate humiliation for these wicked angels and for Satan himself. 
the death and resurrection of Jesus is him parading through the streets, his defeated enemy, the prince of the power of the air. Then Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father. He is ascended above all rule and authority and dominion and power and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So we get this, in this text, a cosmic sneak peek into the end, into the defeat of these demons. We see Jesus demonstrating his authority as the Son of God. With the power of his voice, demons flee, thousands of pigs head into the sea, and now they're just bobbing in the ocean. But this authority, this demonstration of authority, it is a frightful thing. It is a fearful thing to consider the power of Christ. And we see from the reaction of the crowd that this authority causes great fear. And it's a fear that will either drive you towards Christ or it will cause you fleeing from Christ. And that's point number two. Jesus' authority is a fearful thing to consider. It will either drive you toward Christ or away from Him. Look there in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had, been, who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. And declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now this is obviously not the average day for those pig farmers. And so when they saw what happens, they flee and they go into the city and they go into the surrounding countryside and they begin to tell everyone what happened. Though Jesus didn't command the pigs to go kill themselves, from the perspective of this man, it's Jesus' fault. And so he goes and he begins to sort of share what has happened. And naturally, the crowds then, they want to come out and they want to see for themselves what, what's gone on and what should have caused them to rejoice, caused them great terror. They found the demon-possessed man made whole. Now the context then is not so much that they saw the, the pigs and were afraid. The evidence that they see is the demon-possessed man. They see that and they are afraid. Well, what do they see? They see him sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's no longer rushing around in a violent rage in a crazed state he is sitting quietly demonstrating his discipleship to jesus presumably he's learning from jesus he's no longer dwelling among the tombs he's there with christ the one who gives life 
He's clothed. The shame of his nakedness has been covered by Christ. And he's in his right mind. He is completely and utterly transformed. Jesus has delivered this man. He's no longer given over to those wicked angels who afflicted him. He is made whole. And if, if, if then we were right earlier to say that Satan and his wicked angels are raging against the image of, of God and man, if they rage against the image of God and man, Jesus has come to restore the image of God in man. Jesus has come into the world as the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. And when Christ saves a person, when Christ saved you, if you've come to Christ by faith, trusting, throwing yourself, relying on his death and resurrection on your behalf, in your place, for your forgiveness of sins and your right standing before God, if you have come to Christ this morning, so many things happen to you in that moment. You were credited with the righteousness of Jesus. You were adopted into the family of God. Ultimately, and above all, we'll see we were united with Christ. But one of the things that happens to you is, is Jesus begins the process in you of making you like Christ. You are being conformed back into the image of God. Where before we failed to image Him. He is restoring then what sin Satan and the world have corrupted. He's restoring what sin, Satan, and the world have corrupted. And Jesus alone has the authority to do this. Jesus alone can do this. You can't bring this about by willing it. You can't bring this about by, by earning it. Society can't shape you into this person that looks like Jesus. This must happen through the power of His Spirit for those who turn and trust in the work of Christ. This is the work of God in us. So Jesus has done what, what society had failed to do. They tried to curb this man's behavior. They tried to shackle him. They tried to put guards over him. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't change him. They could not do it. And Jesus comes and He does what they were unable to do and it causes terror in their hearts. Now, John Murray was asked if we should be afraid of God. And he said, it's the height of folly to not be afraid of God if there's a reason to be afraid of God. So in one sense, their fear is right. And it's, it's justified. They cannot deny the evidence that God is in their midst. But this isn't a proper fear that's working in them. This is a terror that, that, that desires to be out of the presence of Jesus. Apparently, it's costly to have Jesus around, so Jesus has to go. So um, this fear, this terror, it's, it's a rational fear in one sense. But it should have been the very thing that caused them to turn and to embrace Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a Christian I wonder if you would consider for a moment why you are rejecting Christ. If you would be honest with yourself because rejecting Christ is not always as rational as we want to make it out to be. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk with, with one of the elders or 
a church member, maybe the person that asked you to come to church this morning, if you're a teenager or a child, I would encourage you, talk with mom or dad about Christ and what he has accomplished for you on your behalf. You would think that the crowd would be rejoicing at this man's deliverance. Even selfishly, you might think that they would say, oh, good, we don't have to worry about that guy anymore. He no longer poses a threat. But they don't even get there. They are dismayed. They've learned to sort of deal with the lunatic. But this, this Christ who has all authority, they don't know what to do with him. They don't know how to respond to Jesus. So in verse 37, with a united voice, it says they all say this. You have to go. You have to go. This terror leads them to want to be outside of the presence of Jesus. In Bible Hour, we've been learning some about the fear of the Lord. And we've seen that there's a fear like these, this crowd demonstrates here, a fear that, that flees and hides from the Lord, that rejects the Lord. But then there's a proper fear, a fear that leads to repentance and ultimately a fear that leads to drawing near to Christ. To illustrate it from Luke, there's a massive difference. There's an eternity-defining difference between Peter's response to Jesus in Luke 5, where he says, I'm unworthy to be in your presence. There's a difference between saying, I'm unworthy to be in your presence. There's a difference from that, and I don't want to be in your presence. I don't desire your presence. When Peter falls to the ground and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, he's expressing a humility in light of the authority of Jesus that was on display in Luke chapter 5 with the fish. He recognizes that he is unworthy to be in the presence of Christ. But as he looks up then and sees that Jesus is still present, Jesus hasn't departed from him but has drawn near to him, he is compelled to follow Christ. That's the right and proper response to the fear of the Lord. John Newton, in that famous hymn, Grace has taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear is relieved. It's grace that we see the all-authoritative Jesus. But then we're, we're called, we're commanded to respond to Christ, to draw near to Him, and by grace we are welcomed into His presence. As Spurgeon said, true fear, biblical fear of the Lord draws, leans into Christ. It leans into Him. But there's also then this fear that repels. There's a love for darkness rather than light that wants to be rid of Jesus. There are too many implications for this authoritative Christ. I must rid myself of Him. I must flee from Him. I will not give up my sin. I will not give up my desires. I will not give up my habits. I will not give up my life to serve this all-authoritative Christ. So they compel him to, to leave. And he obliges. In this instance, Jesus chooses to, to not stay where he is not wanted. But he will leave behind a man who will testify to the power and the work of Jesus. The last couple of verses serve as sort of an, an epilogue. 
the story's really wrapped up. Jesus gets in the boat and it says he returned. That's, that's the end of the narrative. But we would be left wondering, well, what about the man? I'm curious. He doesn't show up anymore. So, so there's an epilogue here. The man naturally wants to be with Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to go with Jesus. The text says he even begs Jesus to let him go. But Jesus has another plan for this man, another ministry for this man. He commands him in verse 39 to go out and declare how much God has done for you. Go do what God has done. He would be living proof that God can deliver the, the greatest offenders, the ones that we might consider the least likely. If we, if we were to put this in the paradigm of the four soils that we learned about a few weeks ago, we would say, he's the hard-hearted one. That gospel's not getting anywhere near that guy. But maybe the crowd, maybe the other Gentiles there, they might, they might receive this message about Jesus. But he becomes a testimony that Christ can save even the, the vilest offenders, the worst offenders, and so the man obeys. He goes and he preaches. And I love what the, the end of verse 39 says. Jesus said, go and declare how much God has done for you. And look at the end of verse 39. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He was told to, to testify to the work of God, and he said, this is what Jesus has done for me. Luke knows, maybe not everybody recognizes it at this point in the ministry of Jesus, but Luke knows there's no contradiction there. Tell them what God did, this is what Jesus did. And this brings us back to the theme of the passage, that Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of the Most High, as the one who shares the same nature as the Father, He has authority with the power of His voice to cast out thousands of demons and the good news for those of us this morning who are in christ is that we actually share through our union with christ a victory over these principalities and powers you have been raised up and you've been seated with christ in the heavenly places in christ jesus you are united with the one who has won the victory you are united with the one who has all authority my Uncle, to illustrate union with Christ, my uncle traveled all the time. He's a businessman, flew all the time, flew everywhere. So he had all these special flying privileges. And we were flying out of the same airport, but on different flights and at somewhat different times. And I'm like, even in rapid, I'm going to get there probably two hours early because I don't want to miss my flight. Right, so we're flying out of DIA, we're like 45 minutes early, and he's like, ah, it's fine, we'll make it. And I'm like, I don't know, man, I don't think I'm going to make it. But he's like, I got this thing, it, we cut through the whole security line, and I'm like, yeah, but I don't have that. And so we, we get there, I get my ticket, and I'm just following him. We, if you've been to DIA, there's one security line, right? I mean, it's just like, it's not like 15 different lines. There's one line. And you look out over the edge and you're like, there's no way I'm making my flight. And so he cuts us all the way through security. I'm kind of nervous at this point. He goes before me. He scans his ticket, which of course has all the privileges on it. And now it's my turn. And all I can think to say is, I'm with him. <laughs> and you know what? They let me through. 
They let me go, not because, I, not because I'd earned it, not because I paid the extra money, not because I have the business travel plan, but because I'm with him. And that's what union with Christ is. I'm with Christ. He's earned it. He's done it. He won the victory 